Now take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, another passage that will teach us of the care of our God who loves us, who is always with us. Uh, we come to a passage that perhaps you've never read before, that is perhaps confusing to you if you have read it before, uh, and yet it is God's Word. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of our Lord. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get a log there and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. And one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. And the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we study his word. Father, you have given to us your word. It is truth. It is living. It is active. Would you come by your Holy Spirit now and help us to understand, help us to apply and to live in the light of this truth. Lord, may you, who you are and who we are, be real to us through this text. We pray, Father, uh, that you would show us your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would give to us a glimpse of his beauty, of his glory. We thank you, O Father. Son and Spirit, for all that you are doing in our life. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We've all been there, haven't we? We all could tell our stories of times where we've borrowed something from a friend only to have it break while we were using it. Or perhaps worse, uh, we broke it, right? Or our child broke it. Right? We perhaps lose it and, and just take what they have and, and, and it's all of a sudden gone. Right? And so we, we know how horrible that feels. We know the, the embarrassment. We know the shame, even the, the cost to our, our pocketbook because we know that typically we're going to have to you know, replace the item that has broken or that we have lost. Well, that's what we find in our text this morning. A man has borrowed an axe. And while he's using it to chop wood near the Jordan River, the axe head somehow apparently flies off, sinks to the bottom of the Jordan River. And yet, Elisha is there. And so God, through Elisha, his prophet, powerfully overcomes the forces of gravity and the iron axe head floats up to the surface of the water the way that you, when you've pushed a pool noodle under the water and let it go, the pool noodle pops up to the top of the surface. Here it is, this iron is floating on the top of the water. The man is spared embarrassment. He's spared the cost of having to purchase a new axe head uh, for the person from whom he had borrowed it. Why in the world is this story in the Bible? Have you ever wondered, like, what is going on here? Like, maybe you've read it before and you've wondered, maybe it's the first time you've, you've heard it. This situation is so ordinary. It's so mundane. It's so just kind of regular every day. It seems like a minor league miracle. Right? It's not anything like rise, raising someone from the dead. It's not anything like healing somebody from leprosy. He makes the axe head to float and the man takes it up again. What is going on? What was God wanting to teach 
his people as they were in exile in Babylon receiving this book for the first time in the 500s BC. What is God wanting to teach us today? Remember Romans chapter 15 verse 14 tells us that that everything that was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction, right? That through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Like what is going on for us today? What do we glean out of this passage? Perhaps God has written this text to instruct us uh, that we ought not to borrow things from other people. Is that it? Is, it? is it written to say, hey, don't chop wood around water? Is God wanting to teach us here that we need to make sure we keep our tools in, in good shape? Is he warning against building projects? No, of course God in his word is revealing to us, unfolding through the scriptures, who he is, who he is, his character. And so as we read God's word, we ought to be looking primarily at what is God teaching us about himself. And when we do that in this text, we find several things. The first is this. This passage teaches us that God provides for his most minute people in their most minute needs. God provides for his smallest saints in their smallest needs. Needs. Now, it's important to understand this text, that we understand that these vignettes of Elisha's life and ministry are, are not necessarily written in chronological order. Right? We, we see that particularly as we compare chapter 4 and chapter 8. There's famine mentioned in both. That we also see that, that Gehazi, who we saw in chapter 5, was struck with leprosy because of the way that, that he sinned against the Lord in, in regard to Naaman. Uh, but in chapter 8, he's like hanging out with a king. And so it's clear that, that these, these things did not happen in a chronological order. The, the author of Kings has, has placed them how he wants them to be read. He's, he's placed them in, in a particular order. And so when we come to a text like this, it's important that we realize where it sits in the, the scope of the whole. We've just seen in chapter 5 that God has healed Naaman of his leprosy. Naaman, this great and influential and mighty Syrian general. Right? And then after this story, we're going to see a war between Syria and Israel. So right smack dab in the middle of these national and international big, large-scale affairs, we have this little bitty story about how God deals with the teeny tiny remnant of the sons of the prophets, and in particular, this one particular prophet who lost a borrowed axe head. Now, these sons of the prophets, this man, they're nowhere near as important, as significant, as influential as Naaman. They're nowhere near as important, we might say, as, as war between nation states. And yet this text reminds us that God is concerned about these saints. He's concerned about their welfare. He provides for them in their time of distress. Even though their needs, their desires appear to be inconsequential, maybe even unworthy of the time and the energy and the attention of the man of God, and yet God provides for the most minute of his saints in their most minute needs. Now, notice that this story can be broken down into sort of three scenes, right? And in each scene, that the sons of the prophets are making a request, and there's this sort of downward progression in terms of size and scope, right? Both in terms of the number of people who are affected by the request, as well as the relative importance of the crisis that's at hand. And, but in each one, Elisha answers in the affirmative. All right, first you have uh, this, this conversation between the sons of the prophets and Elisha. It seems that God has, has been at work. The, the number of the prophets is growing. They're, they're, they're in cramped living quarters. 
right? And so they, they say, hey, Elisha, can we go and build a, a bigger place to live closer to the Jordan River? Uh, and Elisha says, yes. It's not a huge crisis, but it's, it's something that, that is, is a burden, is a problem. And Elisha says, yes, you, let's, let's relocate. Right? But then you have this, the second scene where one of the prophets uh, doesn't want to go without Elisha. He wants Elisha to come along with him. Uh, obviously, Elisha wasn't needed to supervise the, the work of chopping wood. All right? This request is nowhere near as, as necessary uh, as the first one. It's not much of a crisis at all. Uh, and yet, as we'll see, what's interesting about it is that uh, the result of this one man's desire ends up benefiting others. And then you have the last request. It's a personal crisis. It just really affects one person. And I guess the second person would be the, the one who, who lent out the, the axe head in the first place. Right? Uh, it, who knows, maybe it was called by this man's negligence in using the tool. All we know is that there's a crisis, but it seems like such a petty crisis, such a trivial thing. And yet, just as in the case of the first two, the Lord, through Elisha, answers both this request in the affirmative. Because here's the deal. Whether it's cramped living quarters, whether it's the presence of God's servant, whether it's a miraculous recovery of a sunken piece of iron, God knows all of the needs of all of his saints. He knows all your needs, all your wants, all your desires. He intimately cares for you in every single one of your crises, however big or however small they might be. It's easy, isn't it, to think that God's greatness is shown only in the big things, the macro things, the large-scale things. Look how great God is. Right, he's the God who's in control over the rise and fall of nations, over who becomes our governor, who becomes our president. Right, he's the one who, who determines right, when inflation is going to rise or fall so that the Fed will can lower interest rates. When's the drought going to go away? What's going to happen with this war in Ukraine or in Israel? What if China invades Taiwan? Right, these are big things, and God shows his greatness because he's in control of all that. But God's not just in control of the big things, is he? And God's greatness isn't just seen in the big things. God's greatness is also shown in his attention to the very small and tiny and ordinary details of his small and tiny and ordinary people like you and like me. But we get this, don't we? If you've ever rented a house on Airbnb, maybe you've noticed, oh, super host. You're like, what does it take to become a super host, right? I looked it up. One of the things is you've got to have an average of 4.8 on your rating, 4.8. Now, how do you get 4.8? How do you get like all these fives and maybe like one four? Well, isn't it paying very careful attention to the small details? Things like, is it easy to get into the, the building? Have you ever gone to an Airbnb and you go and like the code doesn't work? Are you giving that person a five? No, right? You walk in and it's dirty. They don't get a five. Or you walk in and there's like no instructions about how to, to do things, like how to use the TV or it, maybe, maybe the person who says, Look, here's free food and candy on the table for you, right? Here's free tickets to this play while you're in town. That person's a super host, right? That person's going to get a five because they're caring for you and for your details, for your very small needs. God is a super God. God is a great God, not just in the big things, but in those little bitty details. God cares about your personal story, your individual history. If you are his, then he knows and he has concern for where you live, the things you borrow, all your belongings. God knows you 
He's concerned for the littlest of his saints and the littlest of our problems. Remember how Jesus told this to Peter? In Matthew 17, right, they're, they're having a conversation about the temple tax, this tax that Jews had to pay. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, hey, Peter, I want you to go fishing and you're going to catch a fish. And in that fish's mouth, there's going to be a coin. And it's going to be a coin that's worth enough to pay for your temple tax and my temple tax. Go pay it for us. This miracle, it seems such a crazy miracle, but Jesus is trying to teach Peter, I care about your needs, right? I am your God. I am your savior. How does Jesus put it in Luke 12? He says, are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are numbered. Don't fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Or again, in Matthew 6, again, uh, uh, Luke pointing us to the birds. He says, look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they are? The Lord cares for us. And do you see what this implies? Because God is so great that he cares for our small little details. Because God is so good, it means we can trust him. Isn't that what God is saying to his people who were there in Babylon in exile? I am your God. You can trust me. Follow me but not just trust me and follow me, pray to me. Right? There is nothing insignificant, nothing too insignificant to bring before the Lord, our God. Whenever we encounter tight places, distresses, losses, desires that are not fulfilled, just like this man cried out to Elisha, so we can cast all of our cares, all of our burdens upon God. He is the God, as the Psalms tell us, who daily bears our burdens. He cares for us intimately. Now, imagine a man came up to this prophet and said, look, don't bother the prophet with this. Don't bother Elisha. He's got better things to worry about than dealing with your borrowed sunken ax head. Why would you bother him? But Elisha would say, why bother me? Why bother me? Because God knows and God cares about all your needs, all your desires, all your struggles, all your temptations, all your trials. Even if in the grand scheme of things, they're not that important, God knows that they are important to you. God knows that though they may not be the most urgent or weighty of requests in your life, they are urgent and weighty. He even cares about your borrowed accents. And this knowledge of God, this knowledge of his character should lead us to action. It should lead us to fervent prayer, to humble supplication, to come boldly before his throne of grace, seeking grace to help us and mercy in our time of need. Have you ever had that experience with the Lord where you, you feel like, this is so small. Do I really need to pray about this? Do I really want to bother God and take up his time? It's so trivial. He's so busy. Why would he listen to me? But this text is saying, don't be a practical deist. What's a deist? It's someone who believes God has sort of just set the world in motion. He's created it and he's sort of, you know, washed his hands of it and kind of wound the clock up. It's going. He's out of, out of it. He doesn't have to worry about it. It's going on its own. It's easy to be practical deists, to say that's all true. That's not true. Those things aren't true. And yet to live as if they are true, to live as if God only deals with the big things. But no, God deals with our small issues. And so we can't be reluctant. We can't be afraid to bring our needs to him, our desires to him. We must pray without ceasing throughout 
the day of all the little things that are causing us anxiety and worry and concern? Isn't God's solution for our anxiety and worry that we would bring these things before him in prayer? Philippians chapter 4 Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, bring your request to the Lord. Let your request be made known to God. And his peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Or how does Jesus say it in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things we provided for you. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? God wants us to pray to him about even the little things. He's a, a king. He's a father who loves us, and he provides for our most minute needs. How does John Newton put it? Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, we could also say, small petitions with thee bring. Pray to the Lord about your small things because the Lord knows and the Lord cares and the Lord loves you. That's the first thing we learn from this text. But there's a second thing. It's this, that God works through the seemingly irrelevant details of life. He works through these seemingly irrelevant details of life. You know, I mentioned up before that the The second request that Elisha grants was an interesting request in that it was the request of of one individual man, but it had wide-reaching implications for the rest of the prophets. It it brought about the potential help of the prophet for all the sons of the prophets. But you might wonder, like, why does the Holy Spirit include verse 3 here in the Bible? Why does he include this guy's request in the text of the Scriptures? It's this scrawny little detail Maybe Elisha's present, you know, was viewed as sort of this curious happenstance. Oh, look, Elisha's with us. But but you see what's going on in this story. Everything depends on Elisha's presence, which means that everything depended on that man's request for Elisha to be present with them as they cut down the trees. Had he not made that request, then when the other prophet lost his axe head, Elisha would not have been there. Everything depended on this very seemingly irrelevant detail of the man saying, hey, Elisha, why don't you come with us? But isn't that the way that God's providence so often works? God is always working, even when it doesn't seem like he is. And he's working through these details that are seemingly irrelevant, even though they aren't. Think about your own life. How many times have you said, oh, it's a good thing I brought this along with me. How many times have you looked back on a situation and realized if I hadn't have done this rather than that, if I I had left for work at this time rather than that time, if I hadn't have had that conversation and that random encounter with someone, everything would have turned out differently. You think about September 11th, 2001, how many people maybe slept in, didn't make it to work on time, decided to take an off day, and it changed everything, a matter of life and death. Just this simple, irrelevant detail, but it changed everything for them. Maybe you have sat down at a table, or you have been in a class, or you have lived next door to someone who happens to become your wife or your husband, happens to become your boss or the the person that gets you your next job, the person who leads you to Jesus Christ, or the person who draws you back 
into fellowship with his church. See, the truth is, there is no random encounter in God's universe. There is no random request. Everything matters. Every detail matters. And this is why God tells us, isn't it, to redeem the time, to make the most of every opportunity, to take this truth that God works through the seemingly irrelevant details of life and use it for his glory for the advantage of his name in the world. This past week was my study week. It's the week every year where I plan out the preaching and the preachers for the coming year uh, and try to do some study ahead of time as well as do some reading that, uh, that I just need more focused time to do and longer time to do. And so one of the books that I read this past week was called The Great Dechurching by Jim Davis. Some of you might know Jim Davis. He was a, uh, a leader with crew at Mississippi State uh, in the 2010s. He was on staff at a church in Oxford for a season. Now he's a pastor in uh, Orlando. In this book, he talks about all the different reasons why people are leaving the church in droves, right, in our own day and age. 40 million folks have, are the stats that have left the, the church. Uh, and he's trying to say, okay, why are they leaving and what can we do to bring them back? Well, one of the reasons that he gives, one of the things that he emphasizes is that so many of the de-churched, right, those who have left the church, have left because they don't feel connected to the people of God. They they have no relationships in church, right? They, they don't feel loved. They don't feel welcomed. They don't feel apart. So they've left. They've drifted away. And so Jim Davis says, look, one of the simple things that we can do to bring them back is to invite them to come back. They, they, they long for a connection. Invite them not just to come back to church, but to come into your home for dinner, for lunch, to come into your life, to come into the life of the family of God. If you ever have had the thought, you know, I haven't seen so-and-so around here any longer. Your next thought would be, let me call them. Let me text them. Let me reach out to them and invite them to church. Invite them to lunch, to breakfast, to dinner at your house. And it may not just be folks here that you think, I haven't seen them in Pear Orchard in a while, but, but folks out in the community who you realize they used to go to church, but they don't any longer. This very simple, irrelevant detail of saying, hey, why don't you come to church with me? I'd love to have you. Come and be my guest. Come and eat at my house. It's these small details that God might use to draw the de-churched back into church, to draw them back under the preaching of the word of God, to draw them back into the fellowship of the family of God. You see, if we know that God works through seemingly irrelevant details, and that should lead us to be even more vigilant, more diligent, to use every opportunity that we have, to be on the lookout for those opportunities where that truth of God's sovereign providence can play out in our lives and the lives of those around us. Our God is a sovereign God who's always at work, working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And therefore, we must be a people who are on the lookout to be a part of God's sovereign working in the lives of those that we meet. There is no random encounter. There is no offhanded comment. God is the one who has called us to be his instruments of grace in the world. So brothers and sisters, let us go forth with joy, with daring. Let us go forth with anticipation and eagerness to watch how God is going to work through you and through me. One more thing I want you to see from this passage that it teaches us about God. And that's this, God delights to redeem 
the brokenness of his people. Now, I've been referring to this loss of the axe head as an ordinary crisis. You know, we lose, we break things all the time, even other people's things. And so maybe part of you have been thinking like, well, what's the big deal? Like, why is this man so desperate? Why doesn't he just go get another axe? But it wasn't that simple, was it? Right? Yes, compared to raising someone from the dead, healing someone from leprosy, this is a very minor miracle, a tiny issue. But for this man, it was an incredibly costly crisis. It was huge in his mind, in his life. This is sort of in the, the beginnings of the Iron Age that began in like 1200 BC. Now we're in 840s BC. Iron is still not prevalent, right? It's still expensive. I mean, notice this man doesn't even own his own axe, right? He had to borrow an axe to go do the work of chopping down trees. So to lose this axe head, it's sort of like if you were to borrow someone's car, you, you made minimum wage and there was no insurance in this car, it wrecks and now the obligation is on you to pay for this car, right? That's the seriousness for this man. He was facing perhaps even some indentured servitude. You remember in chapter four where the, the widow says, look, my children are about to be taken into slavery by the creditor. Well, that probably would have happened to this man as well if he couldn't have paid off the debt. He would have to pay it off through indentured servitude, through slavery. So what is God doing here through Elisha? What is God doing when he causes the iron to float? But freeing the man, freeing him from a future life of slavery, giving him life instead of death. What is redemption? We talk about that word a lot, don't we? Redeemer, redeeming. To redeem something is to, to buy it back by the payment of a price. To buy out of slavery, or in this case, out of future slavery, to prevent slavery from even happening. The God who redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, the God who redeemed this man from the prospect of slavery, is the God who is going to redeem those who were exiles in Babylon from their condition. And he's the God who is going to send his son into the world so that we might be redeemed from a debt far greater than any financial debt, a debt that we could never pay ourselves, no matter how long we worked to pay it off, the debt of sin, sin that has brought us into death, that has brought us into slavery, Jesus Christ came into this world to redeem us and to redeem all of our brokenness, not merely causing iron to float, but he himself walking upon the top of the water. Jesus, who took a human body so that he might shed his blood and be the redemption price, be that ransom price for our sins through his perfect life, through his undeserved death on the cross, all of our debts, have been paid. All of our obligations have been met and paid in full. If you trust in Jesus this morning, the freedom, the life, the joy that this man must have experienced is yours. It is yours. But notice that this story doesn't just catapult us forward to the coming of Jesus in his incarnation, the first coming, but also it, it points us even beyond that to his second coming, doesn't it? To the last day. When the curse of the fall is completely removed. How does Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 put it? Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
And doesn't this story highlight one of the reasons why we are eagerly waiting for him? Why do things break? Why do things fall apart? Why do we lose things and make bad decisions and and have things go against us in the creation? Why do things wear out? Is it not because we live in a fallen world? We live in a world under the curse of God because Adam fell, Adam sinned and rebelled. We live in this world where things fall apart, things break, things die. But what is the hope of the return of Jesus Christ? But that when he comes back again, nothing again will ever break, will ever be lost, will ever wear out, will ever frustrate us. Nothing in creation will ever work against us again. All will remain in a perfect condition. This miracle of Elisha making the iron to float points us forward to that day when the brokenness of the fall will be fully and finally redeemed. It's a foretaste of the glory that is to come, a foretaste when there will be no more curse, no more death, no more suffering, no more tears, no more mourning, no more weeping, no more fear of consequences, no more desperate cries for help, when all will be well. This story reminds us that our God is a redeeming God and he redeems us from all of our brokenness. Doesn't Doesn't this story make you cry out, Lord Jesus, come, come quickly? Does it make you long for that day of Jesus to come? And isn't that what the, not just the word, but the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is designed to do? To point us to our Savior, to cause us to remember his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ongoing reign and ascension as our only hope, the only freedom that we have from our slavery, but also to point our hearts forward to the great wedding feast of the Lamb, when all will be well, when there'll be no more suffering, no more sorrow, when all of our sin, all of our sorrow is taken away by Jesus Christ, who has come and who has come again. And so we come to the table rejoicing in who our God is. He's a God who cares about us and all of our needs, who knows us and wants us to cry out to him. He is a God who works through all those seemingly irrelevant details of our life. And he is a God who is redeeming all the broken things. And one day, as he is making all things new, one day all things will be perfectly new. And we will be with him forever, enjoying the goodness and the greatness of our God who is for us and who is with us. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the grace you've lavished upon us in the gospel, for the grace that you show us even here in this story Lord, we praise you for Elisha, your man, your servant. Lord, your instrument of showing your power and your grace to your people. Lord, we ask that you would help us to live in the light of who you are day in and day out. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief, we ask it. Give us greater faith. Give us greater humility. Lord, give us a greater desire for others to taste and to see how good and how great you are. Lord, be with us now as we come to your table. Lord, feed us, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.